Now, this is the fourth and last of the series, the short series of sermons, asking the question, why? We've looked at why creation, why incarnation, why did the Lord Jesus come as a human being? Why the cross? And this morning we're looking at why the ascension. <laughs> and you might add another why. Why on earth is the minister uh, proposing to think about the ascension on the third Sunday after Epiphany? He, he, something rather peculiar must have happened. Well, you see, friends, it seems to me that the ascension is an absolutely essential part of the narrative of salvation. And it's one of those areas, one of those incidents in the New Testament, one of those parts of the Christian faith, which is not really understood well enough. And in a sense, it's a bit of an embarrassment, isn't it? Um, Because it sounds rather peculiar to 21st century ears. We're used to space rockets going up into the upper atmosphere, but not usually human beings, at least not under their own propulsion. And because we don't understand it, and because it's rather a a mysterious and strange event, some people have been led, well, they haven't been led, actually, they persuaded themselves, they certainly haven't been led, um, to, to debunk it, to try and explain it away as if it never happened. Years and years ago, I took part in a discussion between three students, uh, two theological students, myself and another theologue, and a a hostelman, one of the 30 or so students who shared the college accommodation with us. The hostelman was saying that he just didn't understand the ascension, and so the other theologue set about explaining it away. Luke, who wrote... um, Acts was trying to find a way of, of, of explaining what happened to Jesus after the ascension, uh, sorry, after the resurrection. And because he was a child of his time, he believed in a three-decker universe, heaven, earth in the middle, hell underneath. Well, Jesus soot couldn't stay on earth, and he certainly wasn't bound for hell, at least not that sort of hell. So the only way he could go was up. But Actually, it was just um, a clever way of solving a problem, and it didn't really happen. It was, it was just a, a, kind of, a kind of acted parable, whatever that means. And at the end of the discussion, I kept quiet, by the way. At the end of the discussion, the hostelman looked at both of us, and he said, you know, fellas, that doesn't really help me at all. In fact, it causes more problems than it solves. Because if it didn't happen, why did they say it did? Well, let me say straight away, I believe it did happen. And it's got nothing whatsoever to do with three-decker universes or attempts to explain what happened to Jesus. I believe that the New Testament records factually what happened. But because of medieval religious art and our tendency these days to see things in starkly literal terms, we've misunderstood what really took place. And more importantly, 
We've lost the thread of why the ascension is so crucial to understand the Christian faith. Without it, as I say, there's a big black hole in the narrative of salvation. So first of all, let's consider what really happened. What actually happened, the facts. In Acts 1, 7 and following, Luke records that Jesus told the disciples they weren't going to know the exact details of God's plan for the future. They had to go back to, to Jerusalem and be Australian. They had to wait. They'll wait a while. That's what they had to do. They had to go back to Jerusalem and wait a while. Wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit because he would equip them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and away to the ends of the earth. And then in verse 9 we read, after he'd said this, Jesus was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now, two things are recorded. The fact that Jesus went up and the fact that a cloud hid him from the disciples. Now, this doesn't mean, you see, that Luke believed that heaven is a few hundred miles in a vertical direction and Jesus would have to go through the upper atmosphere to get there. It doesn't mean that at all. The reason why Jesus went up was that that was the only direction in which he could go and make sure that the disciples couldn't follow him. If he went north, east, south, or west, they could follow him, couldn't they? If he went down into the ground, they could burrow and, and try and follow him there. The only way in which they could be shown clearly that his earthly presence was over and that they had to go away and wait for something even more wonderful was for him to go upwards. That's why he ascended. It was a way of saying, you're not going to see me in this incarnation anymore. And the other fact that Luke records is that a cloud hid him from their sight. Well, the cloud, of course, is the the Shekinah, the cloud of the glory of the Lord, which always indicates the presence of God. So where did he go? Well, he went to his father. He returned to his father. And I suppose the question that makes the ascension difficult for most people is where did Jesus actually go after he ascended? What happened to him in physical terms? Well, now just... Just now, I I spoke of our tendency as human beings to see everything in starkly literal terms. The phrase, seeing is believing, comes to mind. Now, you don't need a degree in philosophy to understand how hopelessly inadequate that attitude is if you want to make sense of life. Unless you believe that only material things, the things that you can see and touch and feel, are truly real you have to admit that there is a realm of human experience which can't be defined in material terms. For instance, there's no way I could finally prove to my wife that I love her. Even the fact that I'm going to take her to Paris tomorrow to celebrate her 70th birthday wouldn't prove it. And I am. I might have a secret assignation with a wonderful French blonde whom I've met on the internet that Jenny knows nothing about. I haven't, by the way. But you see, seeing everything in starkly literal terms is one of the reasons why we fail to make sense of what God is doing. 
When our Savior hung on the cross, he told the penitent thieves that they would be together in paradise. Now, where is paradise? Well, Jesus didn't say, but that wasn't important. What brought the man peace even in the agony of crucifixion was what Jesus did say. Today, you will be with me. The previous evening, as he was celebrating the Passover with his disciples, Jesus told them he was going to prepare a place for them in his father's house and that they knew precisely where he was going and they knew the way to get there. And in wonderfully blunt honesty, Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how the dickens can we know the way? There it is again, the human insistence on understanding reality only in material terms. And the answer, of course, that Jesus gave to Thomas has echoed down the centuries. I am the way and the truth and the life. Dear, dear Thomas, don't you understand? It's not about a map and a set of instructions. It's about a relationship built on trust. Jesus came not simply to show us the way to God. He is the way back to God. And when we take that first step of faith, we've begun the journey home. The material world of people and things upon which we set such store is not the only realm of reality. Indeed, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, even though everything material, including our bodies, is in a constant state of wasting away, we don't have to lose heart. Verses 16 and following, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. When he ascended, Jesus returned to his Father, and one day we shall be with him. There's no way to describe what it will be like, because the only words we can use are totally inadequate. But if we are with him in the place he has gone to prepare, does that matter? We've looked at what happened. Jesus went up and a cloud hid him from the disciples' sight. We've asked where he went and established that he returned to his father where one day we'll join him. Lastly, I want to show you the aspect of the ascension which is most forgotten but which is perhaps most important what he's doing now. There are two scripture references which give us the clue. 1 John 2 verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And the second is Hebrews 7, 24 and 25. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Now, if you're anything like me, you'll often stumble in your Christian walk. Of course, it's best to avoid stumbling and always to be regretted when it happens. But the best way to deal with it is to keep short accounts with God. I bought a snow shovel last year from Sainsbury's, and I'm jolly pleased I did, you know, because it has enabled my wife 
to clear all the snow. And I say that not because I forced her at the point of a frying pan or something to go out and clear the snow, but she really did enjoy it. She, 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 she came back enthusing about this wonderful snow shovel. Oh, she said, it's wonderful. Just as long as you get to the snow before people tamp it down and, and, and pack it down and it's impossible to shift. And sin is like that. If you keep short accounts with God and immediately you know that there's something wrong, you go to the throne of grace. There's a wonderful, wonderful verse in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us have confidence that we may approach the throne of grace to receive mercy. And that means the forgiveness of sins. To receive mercy. That is what we will receive when we approach the throne of grace and to find grace to help in time of need. And there's no reason for anyone to delay. Don't let the devil allow you to procrastinate, to say, I'll pray this evening, or or, I'll I'll, I'll get up extra early tomorrow morning and pray then. No, no. Immediately you are conscious of sin. Go straight to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because, you see, we know, as 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, that's no excuse for going on sinning at will. Our repentance must be sincere. In other words, we must not only confess it, we must turn away from it. Repentance means both of those. It means confessing and, re- and, and, and admitting it, but it means turning away from it. But even genuine believers who do their best to make mistakes will go on making mistakes this side of heaven. Never mind. We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. In the Father's presence right now, Jesus is speaking in our defense. The ascension is so important because it reminds us that as we struggle against sin, as we do our best to follow faithfully, even though we may falter, and lose our way and fail in the struggle from time to time. Jesus is there in the Father's presence, speaking in our defense. As the writer of the Hebrews says, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus is praying for you and for me now. Jesus is as it were, reminding the Father of the fact that he hung upon the cross there for you and me. Jesus is there praying for you and me constantly. And that's something crucial for us to remember. Did you know that you have a man in heaven? You do, you know. The risen, ascended Lord Jesus is there at this very moment in the Father's presence, praying and interceding for you and for me. And I think that's fantastic. It's no excuse to go on sinning at will, of course not, but it's a wonderful encouragement when the devil reminds you of how hopelessly useless you are, as he reminds me so very often. That's why we have to keep our eyes on Jesus and not on ourselves. 
We're going to sing a hymn now as our service closes, or rather a song. It's one of my favorites because it reminds us of how important the ascension is and how vital a place it has in the narrative of salvation. Listen to the last verse. Once for all, he burst out of the grave. Once for all, the angel sang again. Once for all, the father cheered his conquering hero home. Once for all, once for all. Now that's what happened when Jesus ascended into heaven. And don't you think it's something we ought to think about more than on just one day in the year? Once for all, the father cheered his conquering hero home. And he's there now, our heavenly advocate, pleading the effectiveness of the sacrifice he made and making ready for every believer the place he has gone to prepare.